0: There are so many people in the world that have it worse than me and even worse than you, right? But at the same time, you still, everyone's facing their own silent battles, their own stigma, their own, you know, worry and lack of hope and all that kind of stuff. And I think it's just, it's just very, very interesting and it molds you and it shapes you and it challenges you and it makes you who you are. This is Emily Allard. I am a pro softball player and you're listening to the Heads and Tails podcast.
1: Welcome back to the Heads and Tails podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Som, and each week I bring you an inspiring athlete's story of perseverance or expert knowledge in the field of sports health and safety. Just like flipping a coin, you can't control what happens to you in sports or in life, but you can always control how you respond. This is my response after suffering a traumatic brain injury in a high school football game, and I hope it leaves you feeling both inspired and informed. Welcome back to the Heads and Tails podcast. Today, I'm excited to bring you Emily Allard, who's a pro softball player, the first pro softball player we've had on the podcast. Uh, And she's currently dealing with the effects of post-concussion syndrome while trying to earn a spot on uh, Canada's Olympic softball team. Um, So, Emily, really excited to have you on the podcast. Can you start off by telling us a little bit about your concussion history and kind of what got you to where you are today?
0: yeah i appreciate you having me i've heard quite a few episodes and really appreciate what you're doing for the athletes in the concussion world so thank you for that first of all um i my first concussion actually was as a junior in high school i was a pitcher back then and i was fortunate enough to take one off the dome uh right in my forehead from probably 35 feet away And the doctor said it hit me in the best spot. I had these stitches of the ball imprinted on my forehead for about seven to ten days. Uh, So that was good. And finished the game, which arguably now is probably not within protocol. But that's all right. Uh, But this concussion has been quite something. And it happened June of 2016. It was our ninth game. Wait, wait.
1: Hold up. (laughs) Before we move on to this one, I have a lot of questions about the, the first concussion. Go for it. So you were, you were a pitcher and I, I like work in a doctor's office and I always see these like you know, pitchers getting hit in baseball and softball mm-hmm. and it's like crazy. Like the reaction time that you need to have and like people mm-hmm. get hit in the head, like it's serious, serious stuff. And kind of the docs I work with are like, Well, it's very rare and stuff like that. Like how often have you seen, you know, comebackers like that to pitchers where they just get smoked by by uh, line drives?
0: In person I have witnessed three, I would say, during my career. One is my own. Uh, one was Jolene Henderson during a pro game. And the other one, I can't really remember off the top of my head. But yes, I it is very rare. Um, and I, concussion protocols have come a long way since 2008.
1: <laughs> yeah, that that's around the time when I had my head injury as well. And you're, you're exactly right. Like concussion education was like just starting to kind of Gained some momentum, uh, but we didn't have any like impact testing or stuff like that when, when, like during that time. So, uh, another question about that concussion is why did your doctor say that it had you got hit in like the best place possible? I haven't like heard that before.
0: Yeah. So, I guess the forehead bone, and I could be wrong on this, but they told me in the ER that that was the hardest part of my skull and the hardest one to break or, you know, crack. And when they say that hit me in the best place, an inch lower, an inch to the left, an inch to the right, it would have been either my temple, my eye socket, my nose. Like, it literally hit me in the best spot that it could. And uh, it actually ricocheted from my head off the backstop. That's how hard my head is, apparently. Um, and And our coach actually, get this, yelled at our third baseman because she didn't catch the ball. Oh man, good times. So yeah, I dropped. Uh, I never passed out. I never lost consciousness. Uh, I actually never threw up either. I passed the good old finger concussion test on the field and they let me finish the game, believe it or not. Uh, but then I ended up passing out in class the next day. <laughs> so uh, that's that was yeah, my so- first concussion.
1: So, what were your So, you passed out in class the next day. Like, did you have any other lingering effects? And, like, how long did those symptoms last for?
0: You know, I actually didn't. Um, we had a game that night, the, the day directly after, the day that I passed out. And I got mad at our PE coach. This is the athlete and me. Because as it was happening right before I passed out, I told him specifically, I said, do not call 911. Like, if you call 911, I can't play tonight. That, that was a uh, 15 year old me, bless my heart. And uh, he did. So we um, that was it. Like my head hurt and my hands got really clammy and I felt like I was was kind of floating and I knew something bad was going to happen. But other than that, I rested, quote unquote, for maybe 48 hours and I was fine, like good to go. I got over that in probably three, maybe four days with very minimal symptoms. I was very lucky.
1: Yeah, and it's usually how the trend works is like your first concussion, even sometimes your second concussion. The 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 lingering PCS you know symptoms usually go away pretty quick, but like the more you accumulate, the longer those symptoms mm-hmm. tend to last. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so tell us a, a little bit more about. Actually, before we move on, I thought I have another question. Sure. You know, where do you think that mentality came from of like telling the PE coach to uh, not call the ambulance and to still play in the game after uh you got drilled in the head. Uh like where did you kind of learn that?
0: You know, I'm I'm really not sure. My my mom and my parents and I, we've talked about it a little bit. Uh, I, when I was twelve, I broke my thumb during a game. And it was it was just a freak play, like a bad ground ball or I got hit during an at-bat or something. And I couldn't understand why my thumb hurt so bad. But at the time I had three teammates, we were playing in Utah who had asthma. And all three of them, because of the elevation and the heat, were having asthma attacks. So between a life and death situation, my broken thumb took the back seat and nobody nobody was paying attention to my thumb. And obviously, in the grand scheme of things, there's, you know, that's not life or death. Like you're fine, Emily, suck it up. And I did. And then at the end, when we went to go get x-rays, my mom felt like the worst human being in the world because my thumb was actually broken. And I think I had been you know, programmed from a very young age, like, what, what exactly is your pain threshold? Like, how high does it go? What can you put up with? And I think when I was on the field and took that ball off my head, in the grand scheme of things, I was awake. I didn't pass out. I could follow a finger. And I thought, you know, that I was okay. And uh, to piggyback off that, that game, we had never won a playoff game in our school history. And that was our first playoff game uh, that we had won ever. So finishing it was a big deal for the school. And then obviously wanting to continue to play and leave that mark, uh, I guess, mattered more than my brain security.
1: Yeah, last week I just – I interviewed uh, an athletic trainer named Dustin Fink. He had a blog called The Concussion Blog. and okay. He hasn't been active in the last couple of years, but he was like the go-to source for a while um, in like 2010 to 2014 range. Uh, but what we were talking about is that there's no concussion protocol in the Super Bowl. And like that, you kind of mm. just explain that same situation. Like there's certain situations in sports like the playoffs, like championship games and stuff like that where like – you know, things are like, uh, oh, you're, you're okay, right? Like, you, you know, you want your star players out on the field. Yeah. Um, So I don't know if there'll ever be a day where, that'll, where that will change, but, you know, who knows? It's interesting. Uh, yeah, for sure. And it's also interesting how, you know, that thumb injury, you, you might have almost like thought back to that thumb injury you know, at, at that time, and I did yeah. similar things with my head injury. It's like, well, I had a bunch of shoulder stuff leading up to my head injuries, you know, because I couldn't hit with my shoulders anymore, so I started mm-hmm. hitting with my head. But the shoulder stuff was like, I was trying to be tough. Like, I remember feeling Mm -hmm. like a sissy for hurting my shoulder or collarbone a couple of years before. And it was just, you know, I I didn't want to be that guy as a senior. So
0: totally can relate to that.
1: Yeah. So, all right, let's talk about your uh, second concussion and, and what happened after that.
0: Yeah. So that was June of 2016. So eight years later, um, in the pros, I was playing left field and talk about previous injuries. I was in left because I had shoulder surgery the summer before. So my throw was still working its way back. So we thought we were protecting me in left field. Um, And a fly ball came down the left field line. It was probably a good 20 yards maybe from my starting position to the fence. And the fence was about three feet high at the time and ran full speed. Didn't really, I knew it was there, but didn't really care. Uh, went to reach for the ball, slammed into it at a very high rate of speed. Uh, clipped me mid-thigh right above my knees and just toppled. Uh, whiplash, sudden impact, etc. cetera. And the docs at the ER a few nights later said it was basically the equivalent of a car crash with no seatbelt and you know just all that force into that impact and my height didn't help me just having all of that leverage to go and obviously it wasn't my first concussion so that didn't help me either and hindsight's always twenty twenty. the ball wasn't even catchable it's probably a solid 10 feet from my reach so ask me how many times i'd like to have that playback
1: <laughs> yeah uh so i'm just trying to picture this so the this was like the fence along the foul line, or? correct? Correct. Okay, not like a home run no. fence. No. Okay, uh, you're lucky you didn't hurt your like your knees too, like <laughs> with that low low of a fence. I feel like.
0: Yeah, well, given my injury history, I've had six surgeries: one on my hip, three on my groins, one on my shoulder. Like the list goes on. So when I hit the fence, I stood up and I was like, "Oh, like." I'm all right, like going through each of my body parts, trying to figure out which one I probably hurt. And as I started walking back to my position is when I saw all these flashes of lights in my eyes, like kind of like a sparkler firework. And I was like, that's not normal. And that's the first time that I've ever voluntarily pulled myself out of a game.
1: At least you had the self-awareness to realize that something (laughs) might have been seriously wrong. For sure who's supposed to be telling you how close you are to the fence? Is that like <laughs> third baseman or center fielder? Like who, who wasn't talking that should have been talking?
0: Uh, maybe our whole team at the time. And that was uh, that was actually the third ball. The batter hit three identical balls down the left field line, like high pot flies that had, you know, so much room to run. And maybe they just thought, well, I thought that I was going to catch the third one. I was like, that's enough. I need I need to catch this one. And uh, maybe they didn't think I was actually going to go for it. I'm not sure, but no one spoke a word.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, we always try to talk about like prevention too on this podcast, and mm-hmm. I think communication in that kind of situation possibly could have prevented something. So it's just wor- something worth bringing up. For sure. Uh, all right, so you had the this you were seeing stars, you took yourself out, and then take us through kind of I guess what's happened since then.
0: Yeah, a lot. Um, immediately after, you know, your normal standard concussion symptoms, nauseous, dizzy, sensitive, to light, noise, etc. So I slept for about 16 hours that night. And when I woke up, I still hadn't seen a doctor. Uh, no one had come to, you'd think at the professional level, we would have access to that. So I stayed out that game and I stayed in the locker room with the lights off. And I'd come out every, I don't know, three or four innings, just checking in, go right back. And then we had a bus trip home that night. So slept the whole bus ride. I think it was six hours. And then when we got back at about 3 a.m., my roommate took me to the ER just to kind of check everything out. So that was immediately after. That following day, I saw our team doc, and she put me on um, your standard dark hole regimen. So no phone, no computer, no TV, no lights, et cetera. They didn't let me to go to any games or any practices. I wasn't allowed to leave the apartment. I wasn't allowed to be in a group setting, and that lasted for probably about 12 days. And five or six of those days, our team was on the road. So I was literally alone in a six apartment complex first five days in complete solitude.
1: (laughs) I think the, I think doctors are kind of like straying away from that kind of protocol Mm -hmm. just because of like the intense isolation that it (laughs) puts on the athlete. Like, I mean, I I feel bad for you just with you explaining what you had to go through during that time. Uh, so can you compare like how your concussion was treated back in 2008 versus how it was treated back in 2016? You know, and you, you one you were at the high school level, the other one you were at the professional level. I'm just curious in terms of like treatment and awareness and education and how people kind of viewed you, your teammates and stuff like that. I'm um, just curious if there was a difference.
0: That's a good question. I'm not too sure. I think my first concussion at the immediate impact, I had probably six or seven people surrounding me, whether that was my coach, the other coach, my mom was there, the two principals were there, like, everyone was there. Um, And when it happened in the pros, I mean, obviously, it was just me alone in the outfield, and walking myself to the dugout. I do feel like in high school, there was more sympathy, maybe, Um, just from a like a provider standpoint, I feel like your high school coaches and teachers and things like that have that nurturing, you know, you're young, you're 15, 16. I think when you get to the pros and you're an adult, you know, quote unquote, you can kind of take care of yourself, so to speak. Um, But I mean, my teammates were very supportive in both situations. And in terms of care, I didn't really need too much of it in 2008, just because it was over so quickly. However, I have seen a bajillion doctors, specialists, physical therapists over the last 19, 20 months for concussion number two. Um, and that's been its own story in itself. So I don't know.
1: All right. Uh, So what are the symptoms that you're still struggling with to this day?
0: So they've put me into five different categories, which I guess complicates everything. Uh, The number one is vision. That's been my biggest concern. So my depth perception has been tested to be clinically poor um, for a normal person, let alone a professional athlete. So that's the biggest one. My eyes tracking side to side are significantly slower than a normal human being. And both of those are not good qualities to have for an outfielder. Um, so that's one. Two is like elevated heart rate. So I have to wear a heart rate monitor every time I want to exercise. I have to stay below a certain threshold. Once I get to that threshold, I can only stay there for a few seconds. Then I have to come back down. Um, we've been slowly been working our way up on each of those thresholds and what those are. But that has severely limited my exercise training. I lost 12 pounds of muscle in about four months, um, that kind of stuff. And then also is the headaches. I've seen a few neurologists, been on different medications, trying to figure out what triggers those and how to prevent them. Uh, I have emergency meds. I have daily meds, those types of things. Um, And what were the other two? Some cognitive stuff. I stutter more than I used to, which kind of scares me from a daily living perspective. I will type emails that I'm typing a sentence and my fingers type a word that is not in the sentence. Like it just does not match anything that goes. I have no idea how it gets there. Um, I forget things a lot. I drop things a lot more than I used to. Um, And then there's one other, and I don't remember what it is at the time, but Basically, through all of the specialists that I've seen, they've been able to diagnose what's wrong with me. But they say that the research is not there yet in order to help me fix it. So I'm in this big game called Wait and See, which has been super fun to be a part of. Um, So that's kind of where I'm at right now.
1: So have any of the treatments like been – effective at all? You know, have you improved at all in any of those categories? You know,
0: I think I've improved in the exercises themselves. However, looking at like the grand scheme of things, I'm no closer to returning to play. Um, I think that, you know, if I could only be on a computer for 30 minutes when it first happened, I'm up to like two hours now, which for a full-time eight-hour job in front of a screen isn't necessarily helpful. So, I I feel like I'm slowly getting there. I've made strides, but I have so much farther to go, which is, for me personally, almost more frustrating than it is hopeful, um, seeing as it's been 20 months. But, you know.
1: Right. Yeah, unfortunately, with with PCS, it's one of those things It's like, yeah, you don't know when it's going to get better, but it will get better. It's just... The, the patience that it takes to, to wait and you know, not do things that are gonna make those symptoms worse, it's it's tough. I I feel for you guys and like I had a brain injury where I almost died. Yeah. But I feel lucky in the fact that I didn't really ever have to deal with like post concussion syndrome like you guys have, which is I don't know, I, I, I feel bad for you. I feel like you guys have it have it worse. No, it's it's funny um, you say that
0: too because I I there are so many people in the world that have it worse than me and even worse than you. Right. But at the same time, you still, everyone's facing their own silent battles, their own stigma, their own, you know, worry and lack of hope and all that kind of stuff. And I think it's just, it's just very, very interesting and it molds you and it shapes you and it challenges you and it makes you who you are.
1: For sure. That's a good way to look at it. At least you have the self-awareness to notice that, you know, and and be able to embrace that. So what are your thoughts, feelings and emotions like surrounding these concussions? Like is it just pure frustration or like what's what's going through your head?
0: You know, the first thing that the first physical therapist told me about concussions was that doing more wasn't going to make it better. And I think that was the hardest and is still the hardest thing for me to kind of wrap my head around because every surgery that I've ever had, you know, if I did 15 reps instead of 10, as long as it wasn't causing pain, I was good. Like that, that was okay. When you suck at a skill, you do more to get better, you know? And I think that's, all, that's been the hardest thing is like the moment something crosses that threshold, you have to stop. And if you're only allowed to do five reps with your brain, you're only allowed to do five reps with your brain. So being, staying within that protocol number one is hard but two when you don't see the results that you want within that protocol knowing that you can't do more I think that has been the most frustrating part and you know people keep saying it's gonna get better you just don't know when but you know how long do you wait <laughs> so those things have been on right. my mind a lot lately
1: I can see that and I, I know I listened to one of your. Uh, previous podcast interviews that you did and you said something about you can't pour from an empty mm-hmm. cup. And I think that's kind of along along the lines of what you just said. And like, it's just like a slow and steady wins the race kind of, kind of deal. But as an athlete and a competitive athlete and a, com- and a competitor who, like you said, of like has benefited and succeeded from the mentality of like a more is better type, you know, yeah. deal. It's definitely a tough pill to yeah. swallow. Um, so, you didn't play last season, correct? So, was this like, uh, it seems like it was a pretty easy decision, you know, to, to not play just because of what you're going through, and I, I'm guessing you weren't medically cleared to play.
0: So, I played in three games. Um, I practiced for the first... W-
1: with the symptoms? Oh, yeah.
0: So, basically, okay. long story short, I was cut in the first week of July after I got my concussion. So about three or four weeks, maybe five, after my initial impact, I was cut from the team when it was just known that I wasn't going to return to play that season. So they thought that by cutting me would allow me to rest and recover. Um, so I had no treatment, no doctors, no nothing from about the first week of August all the way until May when we when I got back with the team. So from that moment, um, I trained in the off-season from like a weightlifting standpoint, from some sprints, but I never really did anything softball specific. And then in May, when I stepped back on the field for the first time, practicing with the team, everything came flooding back at once. The headaches, the noise, the lights, exercise, like everything all came together. And so we kept an eye on it quote unquote, and um, our first game, everything went south really, really quickly. And so the second game, they put me as a DP, which just means they removed me from the field. I made three errors in the first game because I literally could not see the ball. Um, and then that kind of helped, but not really. And then by game three was just kind of a, a mutual decision on all parties.
1: <laughs> right. So how did it feel when you got cut from the team? I mean, I know you had an injury, but like I said, like as a competitor and you played at Northwestern, you were a stud there too. Like that's got to hurt a little bit, you know, to get like cut no matter how what the circumstances are. So like well, how would that feel? Yeah,
0: it's a dagger. Um, there's really no sugarcoating that. And I, th- I think that I don't really know a whole lot about other professional um Teams and players and their contracts and how that works with them, um, but something tells me that your treatment doesn't stop. I don't think so. That that was kind of interesting to go through from my perspective, but it's just kind of, I think at the point when you become injured and you're no longer a physical service to the team, you're kind of a commodity and you're you're done. Once you provide no more help for them on the field, I think you lose any sort of power influence that you thought you had. Um, and that kind of goes out the window. And I don't know if that's just business. Um, it's an interesting way of doing business in my personal opinion. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I don't know.
1: Is is there a softball players, like players association? not. Like a union? Oh, yeah, I'm just saying that because like in football, you're technically not allowed to cut a player that's injured. Yes. Until they're like medically cleared. Like you still have to treat them and you know get them better before. I don't, I'm sure it doesn't always happen mm-hmm. that way, uh, but technically they're supposed to take care of you. So Very good to know. That be that
0: might <laughs> yeah
1: that might be another thing that we we point out to make the softball environment a little bit safer for for the athletes.
0: Yeah.
1: Um. So have you kind of dealt with some of the feelings of isolation? You know, being away from uh your softball team when you've been a part of a team for how many years, you know, how many, how many, how long have you played softball 20 years.
0: for?
1: Yeah. It's <laughs> a big chunk of your life there that you've been a part of a team and played a sport and had that identity. So, you know, how have you, how, how has that part been, uh, affecting you?
0: You know, it's, it's a humbling experience to be all alone when you've, you know, built your entire life around team and friends and, um, that kind of stuff. And I think, In the beginning, I was, it was half isolation and just half missing out on the game. And my teammates and travel experiences, bonding in the locker room, like just all that kind of stuff, not even playing necessarily. But I think one of the toughest parts was when any game was over and my teammates would come back and want to tell me everything and like discuss their at-bats. These are the pitches they saw. This is what happened. And oh, Allard, you missed it. And you know, just all that kind of stuff. And they were doing their best to keep me engaged and keep me in the loop. But it was really just a knife that just dug deeper and deeper and deeper. And so, you know, they would leave and I would literally just sit there and cry for, I don't know, an hour in my roommate's arms, just like, you know, poor me. But at the same time, it's real. Like, I feel like you have to feel those feelings. And sometimes if you don't, maybe that just means you don't Care enough? I, d- I don't know, but it's hard. It was really hard. And I don't know if I ever really figured it out, to be honest.
1: Yeah. And I mean, I, I shed a ton of tears, you know, in the, because I mean, once I had my brain injury, that was the last time I ever stepped foot on a football yeah. field, you know, for the rest of my life. So it was kind of decided for me, you know, and I know you've alluded to that in other articles yeah. and podcasts that you've done. Um,
0: Can I ask you that? But how, how do you, how do you go on knowing that you didn't get to decide the end of your career?
1: Yeah, honestly, that was like one of the hardest parts like of it, I think, because like it wasn't like it was senior night. It wasn't like it was the state championship game. It wasn't like I played, you know, reached my goal of playing college football and like I just finished my career there. It's just like I didn't wake up that morning thinking I was never going to play yeah. again. And it it definitely made that transition harder and I'm going to be honest, like it took me five, six, seven years before I kind of got away from like, I'm Kevin, the football player, you know, I'm nothing else. I don't have anything else to offer, you know, and starting this podcast definitely has helped me, you know, in helping other athletes kind of show all the great things that they have going for them that are not even related to their sport at all Uh, and all the great things that they can do. So it's definitely one of the just like pcs it's it's a time thing before you kind of realize you know like I I' you know I have so much more to offer than than just the sport itself uh, and I could still use the same characteristics and like character traits that made me successful in that sport and put them to use in a different arena
0: yeah
1: well um, we're gonna get into that so of my, so my my next my, my questions okay. down the road for you we'll, we'll
0: Sorry,
1: I'm jumping ahead. Session. No, no, it's it's good. Um so you alluded to a lot of the other injuries that you've had throughout mm-hmm. your career. So you know, what were some of, like the rehab processes like, you know, and how were I guess you you mentioned how they were how they were different in that with those kind of injuries to your shoulder or whatever like you can kind of push it and like do more and see the results whereas this one you kind of have to like take baby steps and you don't really see the results since it's a a hard balance, but is there any other similarities or differences between those injuries and the concussions that you're currently dealing with now?
0: Um, yeah. So it sounds like most of my injuries, if not all of them, were overuse and overwork, which I found very interesting. Okay. Um, besides my concussion, uh, which was a freak accident and in all intents and purposes, it was, it was too much work, you know, and, and not listening to your body. And yes, I feel this, but, you know, I can't sit out for forever. And if it didn't go away in a day, you know, was it really worth it? That kind of stuff. But I think protocol wise, there was always a time frame in every other protocol, like my shoulder, six to nine months. Awesome my groins, depending on which surgery it was, it was anywhere from four to six weeks to four to six months, my hip four to six months, like I was always given, you know, this is how long it's going to take. And with your other body parts, it's kind of the same process. Like you recover from surgery, you work on range of motion, then you work on strengthening, then you work on getting back into play, you know, and then you're full go. And with my brain, it's, that where, where are the steps? What are the steps? And everyone's brain's different and you can diagnose it, but do we know how to treat it yet? And, you know, 75, 80% of cushions don't show up on imaging. So how do we learn the brain's synapses and pathways and all that kind of stuff when it's different for everybody? And it's, you know, I, I get it. Like I get why that research is not there. But then again, at the same time, I don't understand how they can't tell me how to get better. And I think that's the athlete in me that's like looking for that answer. Like, if this is my weakness, how do I fix it? And I think that's where I've struggled the most with this protocol and this injury is I feel so out of control with what's happening. And I've always been in control of how good I could be, if that makes sense.
1: No, that makes complete sense. And... I think it kind of goes into having the game kind of taken away from you too. Like you, you don't have control over yeah. it. Like it's, it's, yeah, it's such a, and those are the most frustrating things to kind of get through. Yep. Um, can you give me like a specific injury where your body was telling you one thing like to, you know, take time off mm-hmm. or whatever and you continued to push through and how that led to a more serious injury that required surgery and time away sure from your Sure can.
0: Sport. I know exactly which one. It was a defining moment in my career. I had, um, I had surgery at the end of my junior year. No, yeah, the end of my junior year. And we knew for weeks, if not months, that I was going to need surgery at the end of that season. And it was my groin again. This was going to be my second surgery third surgery maybe on my groin. Basically, I pulled my abductors off of my pubic bone, like my muscle was hanging on by a thread. And so we got that fixed and rehab throughout the summer, came back in the fall, and something just didn't feel right. Um, and so when I came back in September, October, we got another MRI and either the surgeon never fixed what was actually there, or I just tore it again at some point. So I had surgery December, of my senior year, and the surgeon was confident that I would be back in eight weeks. And eight weeks was literally to the day the start of my senior season. And so we got the surgery, rehabbed, um, followed the protocol. Everything was going well, and I was strengthening and beginning to return to play. So basically, controlled environments, ground balls—you know, not moving too much in each direction—and I had a, an appointment with the doc the, week, the day before we left. So we flew to Arizona on Thursday. I had an appointment with him on Wednesday and he was supposed to clear me to be ready to go. And up until that point, I just had this weird feeling in my gut that I, that I wasn't ready. Like I knew that I had done everything, but I hadn't crossed over from getting ready to play to actually playing. I had no quick change of directions. I had no quick bursts which is what our re- sport revolves around. Um, so anyway, so he did some very basic 101 testing on me and was like, yep, you're good. How do you feel? And I was like, Ugh, I don't know. And by this point, it was like my fourth surgery, so I kind of knew. And But I wanted to play. It was my senior season, so I was like, you know what? If the doc says I'm good, then I must be good, must be in my head, you know, whatever. Anyways, long story short, my first at-bat my first at bat, my first step out of the box, it tears again, and that was my senior season, and I redshirted for the rest of the way.
1: Yeah, Damn. yeah, that's that's rough. But I think I always say this too: like nobody knows your body like you know mm-hmm. your body. No one can tell you how you feel. No one you know, like just because it's been eight weeks doesn't mean that you're ready. Yep. Like just, so I think listening to your gut is like the best thing you could have done. And I say this all the time. Like, the day that I almost died playing football, my head was hurting me so bad that I told my friends when we were walking around the track in mm-hmm. gym class that my brain hurts so bad that I'm definitely going to die tonight. Oh, my gosh. And, like, that's obviously an indication that something is, like, yeah. wrong. I obviously didn't think I was going to die, but that's almost what happened. And, I, you know, that's just my gut, you know, saying that, you know. Wow. Freaking. Wow. I don't know. Say something. But anyway. So did you play any other sports sure growing up? Sure did.
0: I, uh, I played soccer when I was younger. And then um, my parents, it's the only thing my parents ever forced me to do was to choose another sport besides softball, just in case I ever got bored of it, ever got sick of it, didn't want to play it anymore, whatever it was. So I picked up basketball, absolutely loved it. It was my escape from softball, um, poured my heart and soul into basketball. I actually got recruited to play both. But their seasons, if basketball was a fall sport, it would have been awesome. But it's not. It's winter. So um, played that for five years, I think. And then uh, played only softball from college on.
1: Okay. Yeah. When did these, like, overuse injuries the start? The uh, I was stopped it-
0: playing basketball. Yeah.
1: Interesting. Yeah. I mean, that's, like, right in line with, like, what we say all the time on the podcast. So yep. I was just curious. Um can you tell me a little bit more about – so you were, you're a slapper mm-hmm. and I've, I know of the position. I just like never heard mm-hmm. of it being called a slapper before. So can you kind of explain to the audience what a slapper is? Um, yeah, sure. So
0: slappers are your fast kids basically. They are athletic and pretty savvy on the base paths. So basically you turn them around to the left side of the plate because you're closer to first base and instead of standing stationary, like 99% of hitters, uh, it's I like to equate it to the equivalent of Ichiro for the softball world. Um, so your feet are moving through the box, you're moving towards the ball, trying to start that momentum prior to contact. And then your job is to get on base. So we are your RBIs for your big power hitters, whether that's a three-foot hit, a 30-foot hit, or a 300-foot hit, we can theoretically do it all. But that's our that's our job to get on base, to create havoc, um, and to score.
1: So, are you a natural lefty, or do you like, or are slappers like forced into learning how to hit? Lefty? I am not
0: a natural lefty. I was a righty all the way up until my sophomore year of high school, and that's when they turned me around. Um, slappers are both. Some are converted young because they're fast, they're small. They might not ever be big power hitters. Others like myself, I'm six feet long and lanky, and I was just ridiculously fast at a young age. So they thought that might be my best route. Um, turns out it was. So yeah, it just kind of depends on the athlete.
1: Okay. Now, how are slappers viewed in the game of softball? I'm just saying, like, from a softball player's perspective, like, is it like a kicker in football, like how they don't get a lot of respect, or like do people have a great amount of respect for slappers? I honestly
0: think it depends on who you ask, and I think it's gotten better as the years have gone on. Um, slappers usually, I'd say, 75% of the time aren't going to hit home runs, and home runs are what you see on ESPN. That's what puts numbers on the scoreboard. Um, so I wouldn't say that we're not respected, but I also think that we are – at times underappreciated. We, we kind of do the dirty work, if that makes sense. We're going to run hard, run fast. We don't usually get to jog around the bases. Um, so, yeah, it it's definitely gotten better, but I do think it depends on on who you ask.
1: Uh, so, like, what goes into – the thought process of a slapper, like you get into the, the batter's box and you're, are you like looking for positioning of the infielders, positioning of the outfielders, you know, looking for trends in the pitcher of which way they fall off after they follow through. Like, I feel like there's a lot of creativity that goes into being a slapper. I'm just curious. I, I think that's like a translatable skill. So I'm just curious, like what your thought process is when you get in the yeah, batter's box. Yeah, you're
0: absolutely right. Our job is to read the defense and find the holes. So a big, hole for a slapper is either the 5 6 hole, which is between the shortstop and the third baseman. That's the longest throw on the infield. And, you know, when a slapper's up, you usually have about 2.6 seconds between contact and when they get to first base. Softball's bases are shorter than baseball, so the game's a lot faster. Um, so in that aspect, you have to be absolutely perfect if you're going to get a slapper out. We, our job is to cause a lot of havoc to force errors to get on base those types of things so yeah we're looking for the pitchers strengths and weaknesses but more so the defense we are playing them reading them and then once we get on base you know trying to take that extra base and score as quickly as we can
1: all right and since the five six hole is like your ideal placement are you looking for outside pitches or can you like make it happen with you know the
0: five six hole is where we're taught as as kids but we're tr- trying to translate to just hitting the ball on the ground. So with softball, we play on a lot of hard surfaces. And you can create a really high bounce, say like 15 to 20 feet, if you do everything just right. And from there, you can't pull the ball out of the air. So we're translating away from that 5-6 hole and more to just hit the ball in the dirt um, and let your feet do the rest. But I do think that there's there's a place for for both. And I forgot what your actual question was. That's interesting. Sorry.
1: <laughs> no, I think that – no, that, that was – I was just looking about the creativity of, of the the slapper role. So you, okay. you, you answered that. Uh, um, so I'm curious about like the evolution of the slapper, I guess, because you, you alluded to how the, the playing services are changing and now the role of the slapper is kind of changing in that now you're trying to go for those high bounce shots. So if you, you've kind of probably – Seen the whole thing through. So, how has the kind of the game evolved for you?
0: It's a great question. I think the game itself has evolved. It's gotten faster over the years. I would say there's a lot of rule changes that are happening that are creating that. I think the more that softball is on television, the more they're trying to make the game shorter to fit within that two hour window. Um, so that has part to do with it. But from the evolution of a slapper, I think we're just getting more savvy. And I think as technology becomes a bigger factor all across the board in all sports. We're just analyzing things a lot more. So, you know, swings are getting more technical. And I think the same thing goes with slapping. So the fundamentals that are going into it, I think, are a lot greater than what used to be, which was kind of touch the ball and just run and see if you can beat it out. I think we're getting away from that and trying to create more of that bounce, more power slaps up the middle. Um, And those different types of things as opposed to just making contact.
1: Okay. How has those groin injuries affected your speed?
0: (sighs) That was my biggest fear when I was in college is that I was going to get slower. I spent a lot of time talking to our sports psychologist about that. Um, I think I've lost a step for sure. I think I was young too. So maybe age has something to do with it. But I did spend a lot of time with Uh, physical therapist in college trying to break up all the scar tissue that was built in there, let everything heal. The last guy went in and hand-stitched everything together as opposed to putting mesh down, which I think helped. Um, But yeah, it definitely affected my speed, but I don't think it affected it as much as I thought it did, if that makes sense.
1: Okay. Uh, Do you still talk to a sports psychologist today? No,
0: and I wish I did. That
1: was the best thing. Yeah, I I, was, I think that's that would be my number one recommendation for you right now. All right. Uh, yeah, I mean, I still to this day see a sports psychologist, and I don't even play sports, but I still deal with – I have like a knee injury and stuff. Like I still deal with the same like mental battle that uh, – I mean, you're always an athlete at heart. So if I were you, I would definitely try to make, make an appointment with one. I have, I have a few uh, – Recommendations? Yeah, if you I'll want. definitely
0: take them. My batting average rose 130 points from my freshman to my sophomore year. And I attribute all of that to seeing a sports psychologist.
1: Really? What did they say? Like, what, what was like the, the trigger for um, it?
0: We did, you know, honestly, a lot of it was visual stuff because I was so limited through my injuries. I probably spent more of my career in the training room than I did on the field. And that's not an exaggeration. So we did a lot of mental reps, but I also think it was just, I had all of these irrational fears about whether I was good or not, what my coaches thought about me. Um, you know, they would tell me to get lower and I would hear you're a horrible shortstop, you know, like that, that divide. Um, so he just helped me right. see things for what they were and stop trying to attach stories to them. I, I always seem to think that things were worse than they were. So dealing with him just helped me play. Like I just needed to play and stop thinking about everything that could possibly go wrong.
1: I'm guilty of attaching stories to things as well. So I'm (laughs) I'm (laughs) I'm I'm with you on that. Yeah. No, definitely not. Um, So what are your passions outside of softball? It seems to be like a huge part of your life. And you, uh, to me, just as a person on the outside looking in, you love softball like I love football. So I can see why you're struggling so much being away from the game. So what passions do you have outside of softball? You know,
0: I've I've really been trying to figure that out this summer. I hit rock bottom this summer and realized that I needed something outside of softball. My job, my full-time job is softball. I play. The company I created with my best friend is also around softball. I give lessons. That's also softball. So I found paddle boarding this summer which was awesome. Um that's been on my bucket list for a really long time and I'm glad I got to do that. I love the water, the ocean, the beach, playing the waves. Um, I kind of started yoga, but I need to be better at it. And that's the athlete in me already. That's a horrible thing. And other than that, just I need I need more. I need more activities. It's a great question.
1: So with the paddle boarding like what do you love about it like what what like well uh, first of all
0: it's on the water well well, well why do you consider it a passion yeah, now it's okay on water, it's on the water so that crosses off box number 1 number 2 it's challenging and it's still uh like a full body workout it's still athletic i still feel like i'm i'm doing something but at the same time it's so peaceful and it's just you and the board and the water um and apparently there's stand up Paddleboarding yoga, so I think that's what I really need to find. That would be great. Combination (laughs) of the
1: two, yeah. There you go. Um, I'm I'm curious. Like, does paddleboarding exacerbate your symptoms like a ton? Just I'm (laughs) thinking, like, visually, like you're rocking all over the place. You're exerting yourself physically. I feel like that combination. If it's outside in the bright sun, like that could affect your like sensitivity to light. I'm just curious. Like, does that make yep. it worse? Or
0: so I had to wear my heart rate monitor when I went, and um, my heart rate was pretty good. I was able to keep that underneath. I wore my sunglasses, and I slept for a really long time afterwards. So it's probably not my best bet. <laughs> but that's the thing. Like, I, I am I am fully aware that I need to stop doing things that are going to aggravate things. However, at the same time, I feel like my entire life has changed because of this and things that I like to do, things that I want to do. And I, I haven't accepted that yet. And I think that's part of my problem.
1: Yeah. I mean, just think back to like your, the, your groin injuries and those like overuse injuries, like in a lot of ways, it's like the same thing. And as much as it like sucks <laughs> to, you know, you, you really like paddle boarding and, but you feel like crap afterwards. Like Maybe right here, right now is not the best time to yeah. do that. But, you know, so so down the road, you could do it whenever the hell you want. <laughs> do you um, ever think about
0: the things it, it, it's you a can t- get through, though? Like, do you ever feel like if you could get through it, you could do it?
1: Y- yes. But what I will say is that that mentality has led to a lot of bad things in my life like injury-wise uh it almost killed me on the football field it ruined my knee to a point where i can't do crossfit and stuff like that that like was my place that i loved after my injury that was like my happy place so i can't do that anymore because i never i didn't listen to my body and kind of what i've learned is or like the mentality that i've adopted is it's less about just, like, surviving and just getting through it and sucking it up. Like, I freaking played a football game with a bleeding brain. I'm like, how – like, what else could you do to be, like, tougher, quote-unquote? Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's stupid. So – but I was performing at, like, half of my capacity because my head was freaking killing me and I wasn't playing like the player I normally do. So, you know, was I really helping my team by doing that? Like, who was – who was I – you know, what was I doing there? So – how I look at it now is like I try to do everything that I can to the highest standard of my like capability. And once that standard is like lowered, I stop. I don't try to keep pushing through it and like just, just surviving out there, and like going through the motions. Like to me, that's like not tough. Like anyone could do that. The tough part is like doing whatever task at hand, you know, that you have and doing it, like 100% perfect form, everything, you know, like should be in a textbook, like the way that you do it yeah. with everything. And to me, when I embrace that mentality, I kind of get that feeling of like winning. Like I just won a football game or I won, I just hit a home run. Or I, I get that feeling when I when I accomplish something or I get to a task where I had that mentality. Because I know like I literally gave everything I had without hurting myself in, in a safe way. And that's, I don't know, it's helped me recently. I appreciate
0: that. I needed to hear that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, All right. So take us through the battle that's going on in your your (laughs) head right now uh, with weighing the risks and benefits of returning to softball.
0: That's such a great question. And I feel like even this last 50 minutes has been enlightening for me. And I think that's... That's just the battle that I'm facing. And that's exactly the reason why I reached out to you was I really, like, I really don't know what to do. And on one side, I have hope. Like you even said it yourself, it's going to get better. Everybody that I have talked to has going to get better, whether they have a medical degree or not, whether they've been through it or not. Everyone has hope. So for me, I feel like, why would I give up when everyone has hope? And I, don't, I know it's not giving up. Like if I choose not to go back on the field, I know that it's not giving up. But deep down, I feel like that's what it feels like because how many stories do you hear where people were so close when they decided to call it quits, you know, and I, and I would hate that for that to be me. Now, on the flip side of that, I know how I feel every day. I know how I felt when I stepped on the field. I know how I feel training. I know how long it's been. I know the work that I've already put in. I know the work that's still ahead. And I know in my gut what I think my answer is. So I have these two different sides. And the only thing that's looming over my head is every kid's dream of playing in the Olympics. Maybe not every kid. But I, I have this opportunity that I've dreamt of for 20 years once I started playing. Um, and it's literally within reach. It is within reach. And then now you go back down to those two tiers that I just described. And I am so in the middle that I don't even know what to do. I don't even have a plan anymore. I've given up all plans. I'm just going day by day.
1: (laughs) Yeah. When you said that you were so close to the dream, I'm thinking I'm like, She's a a professional (laughs) softball player. I'm like, what else? Like, what else is there? Like, you reached it. Like, there's what else is next?
0: She was like, you're Um, 26 years old, and you've done more in your life than most 60 year old human beings. But I still want more.
1: Yeah. But I think that's just like the athlete mentality of it's always like the what's next thing. And then like when you're searching for that what's next, like you forget about all the amazing things that you accomplished, like that led you to that point. But I see what you're saying about, like, if, if if that's something that you dreamt of, like, your whole life, you know, in my head, like, it is still worth it to try to get back out there and, and do it. If that's something that you want to accomplish, like, you know, that's – I think it's – it might be one of those circumstances where, like, yeah, you make your symptoms a little worse. <laughs> but as long as you're not, like, bashing your head into that's things going and, like, playing we catcher over <laughs> –
0: That's where I get
1: torn. I mean, I see both sides. I don't know if it is, though. Uh, uh, Like, to me, if you're, if you go out there and you start, you start playing and you you get bad symptoms again, then you know, like, all right, like, this just isn't in my cards, you know? But like, if you don't try at all, then you're always going to be kind of wondering. I just think it might be like, it might give you the answer you're looking for. Yeah. Is what I'm saying. One way, or, one way or the other. Right. Um, so, do you have any fears like surrounding your retirement? Like you've had a ton of injuries, you're dealing with this concussion stuff, and a lot of people listening to this might be like, you know, why the hell are you <laughs> even inter- entertaining the thought of trying to play softball? Still, I mean, I understand because I've I've felt that pain. I get it. Um, I, if I could, you know, go play football again today, I would 100% do it. I just can't. Yeah. Um, so, you know, what, what fears do you have surrounding retirement?
0: You know, I, I have and always will play for the kids. That's like, that's just me. I was that kid. I still am that kid. And I feel like the moment that I stop playing, I'm no longer that kid. And I think that's my biggest fear is that that, that will go away. Like my, my passion, my why, I do what I do will go away and I and I feel like that might be an irrational fear because I mean are the kids really gonna go away Emily? No, probably not, but I feel like I can relate to them so well while I'm still playing while I'm still in cleats While I still have that connection with them like people ask me all the time Why I don't coach and I don't want to cross that line like I don't want to cross that line between I'm not like you anymore and I know eventually I'll have to get there. Like, I can't be a 55-year-old and still claim that I'm a child. But I do feel like I'm still close enough to have that type of impact. And I'm really afraid when I'm done playing that that's going to go away.
1: So you think that the co- like going into coaching, you wouldn't have the same impact?
0: Yeah. In a weird way, I do.
1: I guess explain that to me just because I think a lot of people think of coaches. I think of my coaches as they had a huge influence on my life. You know, like when I was, I think of my high school coaches, like they made me who I am in in a lot of ways, especially young kids. Like they're very vulnerable and they want that kind of like leadership. So, I mean, I looked up to Tim Tebow (laughs) and stuff growing up, but like I don't know how much influence he really had over me because I never, you know, I, it's a long story, but I eventually I threw football oh, with him sweet. once because I worked for the Jets. Person,
0: that's you. awesome.
1: But anyway, like, but in terms of like what my high school coaches and my parents did for me, compared to my idol, who I guess you would be, you would be filling that role. I feel like you have far more influence coaching. So I'm just curious, like, what makes you think you're gonna lose? Yeah, that's
0: that? a really good point, and I I agree with you. Uh, you have could name all of my coaches from the very beginning and those that had a huge impact on me. And I think the way that I see it is when when you decide to coach, you I I see it as like settling down. Like you're gonna settle into this role and you get 15 to 18 kids a year from softball, from that roster size. And I I'm at a point in life right now where I want to get to as many kids as I can. Like, I want to have an impact that spans states and maybe even countries if Canada gets in there. Like, I want to be able to have those connections and those relationships with as many kids as I can just to let them know, like, there's somebody who has made it to this level that is exactly like them. Like, I was you. And I feel like the moment I decide to coach, that that impact gets broken down into a very small subset. And I'm not sure if I'm ready for that yet.
1: Yeah. I 100% hear what you're saying. I'm just thinking it's almost like a quantity versus quality kind of thing. It's like you could probably reach, you know, thousands of more kids being a professional softball player. But in terms of like impact on those kids, I feel like, you know, the coaching route might be something that could give you more meaning, like more meaningful relationships with those with those athletes. Uh, I'm not saying like one way or the other. Like I just said, like if if you've been dreaming of being a, uh, you know, in the Olympics, like freaking go for it, and maybe you'll get your answer one way or another. But I just think that you're you might be cutting the cut the coaching thing yeah. a little short, uh, just based yeah. off of you know the impact that you said that your coaches had and for my sure. experience as well. I think you're right. Um, yeah, so you know, how do you prioritize your health today? You know, you, you talked about uh, yoga, and you know how paddleboarding kind of makes you feel alive and gives you that energy. You know, what other things do you do to prioritize your health and trying to work towards becoming symptom-free?
0: Oof. Um, avoiding things that I know I should avoid. That's that's a tough one, and figuring out what that. What they are, what those triggers are, and then what, what my threshold is, what my actual threshold is, not the one that I know I can push through. But I think a lot of it has to do, honestly, is just accepting it. I think I've had a really hard time accepting that this is my new reality, uh, whether that be everyone thinks it's going to get better or, you know, playing again, not playing again, just, just accepting where I am. I think that's the biggest part of, recovery is you know accepting so that's that's the first part for sure
1: do you ever compare yourself to like before pre-concussion emily and you know just from doing this podcast for 115 episodes to this point you know that's one of the huge things that i think a lot of athletes do and especially like my spinal cord injury um Athletes, you know, you know, we're both talking here, and we said earlier how like there's always someone who has it worse than you, and you know, with with these athletes, they all of them say like once you start comparing yourself to like your quote unquote able bodied self, like you're never gonna be happy. So that might be another thing you can embrace is like you know, compare yourself to how you felt yesterday or like the week before, and like you might see like wow, like I actually you might be more focused on like. That difference, and you know, like I actually do feel yeah. a lot better than I did a week ago. You know, I don't feel a hundred percent, but I feel better than I did a week ago. And I don't know, maybe just that positivity might help. You know, yeah, further things awesome. along. You never know. Um. Okay. So as we wrap up the interview here, you know, throughout your softball career, I'm sure you have had a ton of teammates. You know, were there any teammates in particular that you notice you're like wow this person like never gets hurt they're always healthy they're always out there 100 and like after saying like <laughs> screw these guys uh do you say like what are, what are they doing different than I'm doing that I'm always in the training room and they're out on there on the field
0: wow um you know I, I don't think I've ever looked at it that way I don't think I ever looked at that situation and thought what am I doing wrong or what can I do differently I think it was always more jealousy but not because they were pain free or injury free but it was because they got to work every day to hone their craft where i had to work every day just to be able to get on the field like to get to practice but i don't think i ever looked at it like right. what could i do differently i don't know
1: yeah i mean it honestly like i didn't start thinking about like thinking that way until probably a couple years ago but, like, when I look back, I'm like, I 100% got hurt and was, like, unhealthy because 100% of, like, the way that I played. You know, like, I was always trying to run people over and, like, be the freaking tough guy. And that's what ultimately, like, was my <laughs> demise. So, I'm just curious if – that's why I always ask people, I'm like, like, former pros, I'm like, oh, well, what do these veterans do who have played in the league for, like, 12 years? And they're like, oh, well, they really focus on the recovery. You know, he always never went out, you know, didn't drink. You know, he was always in the training room just getting, you know, stim or ice or hot tub, cryotherapy. You know, all they do everything they possibly can to give themselves the best chance to recover and get out there and play 100% the next day. And, <laughs> I mean, I never did that when I was in high school either. I was like going to Applebee's for like half-price apps after the game, you know, like I, I didn't – yeah, so yeah, no, yeah, that's I, don't, why I, I don't think
0: I have um, ever thought of that. I'll get back to you on that one.
1: Yeah, ask ask some of your teammates that are always healthy <laughs> and see, like, what the hell do you do? Like, you eat like greens, like <laughs> oh, kale yeah. smoothies every morning, or that's what? Awesome. Um, so what advice do you have for athletes going through what you are right now? Like, what would you say to an athlete who's going through exactly? Uh, it's what funny you are? ask
0: that question because I've had some kids reach out to me that have either concussions or injuries or going through something similar. And basically what I've said to them is (laughs) ironically listen to yourself. (laughs) I should take my own advice. Um, And I think that, you know, like you said, you know, your body the best. And I think one of the biggest things with concussions is, you know, people can't really see it and you can go about your day and, look and feel like you're your best self, when deep down, you know, that that's not true. And, you know, trying to be okay with that, first of all, but second is, like you said, not living up to that expectation of who you were, and trying to get your friends to understand that. So I think it's it's just owning your new reality and being confident with that and then not being afraid to speak up when you know, you've gotten to that point where you can't go on anymore.
1: Okay. Good advice. Uh, and last question, which I ask all my uh, guests, is what's your definition of toughness? And maybe how has that changed since you've been dealing with the post-concussion yeah, syndrome? Yeah. So
0: I had some time to think about this one. And my definition of toughness is knowing, knowing the line and knowing the boundary between hurt and pain And knowing when to push through and when to stop. And I think that's a very fine line. I think that line's different for everybody, but I think toughness comes from knowing when you still have more left in your tank and being tough enough and strong enough to say no when you get to that point. And I think that has changed for me through this concussion because I feel like I have less room in my tank. The uh, the docs told me if I came in as a 65 mile an hour car when I got to them I was about 15 miles an hour and that, that was my capacity. And so learning how to deal with that one, but two, when I get to that 15 mile an hour line the tough part of me wants to push through but what's really tough is me being able to say no. And I think that's, that's how I would define exactly. it.
1: Yeah, that's a great definition. And Emily, I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and being vulnerable and in the position that you're in, like, you don't know whether you're going to go back to softball or not. You're not, you know, you're in a unique situation uh, from that standpoint. So I appreciate you coming on and really talking through like some of like what's going through your head and those different struggles that you're, you're going through. And I hope that our conversation helps you. And, you know, I'm, I, I wish you the best of luck, you know, if, if you choose to go down the softball route and kind of achieve that dream of playing the Olympics. Um, but either way I you know, I, I pray that you, you know, get the answer that you're looking for and I have no doubt that, you know, your creativity and your work ethic and just like the person that you are, you know, you're gonna be a success no matter what what you are, you know, and in what industry you're in, whether it's softball or whatever that might be. So uh, thank you again oh, for, for, for coming Thanks for having me, on. and I
0: appreciate those words, and I appreciate you having me while I'm stuck in the middle. And I know that some of my answers don't make sense, but talking them out has helped more than you know. So I appreciate you.
1: Anytime.